Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. I'm Jake Seward, and I run corporate communications here at the firm, and I'm joined today by a man who needs no introduction, George Will, who is, uh, in addition to having been a, a columnist for the Washington Post since 1974, is a frequent uh, guest on uh, MSNBC and NBC, and has written 15 books, the 15th of which we're here to discuss today, uh, The Conservative Sensibility. So George, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, your uh, book is a kind of delves back into your past as a PhD student at Princeton and your work on the founders and what they mean for politics today. Um, explain to us a little bit how you, uh, why you decided to write this book at this particular time and, and what, the cons- what the title, The Conservative Sensibility, means to you. Well, for reasons too obvious to dwell on, there's considerable confusion in the country as to what conservatism means because it seemed to have meant something four years ago that it no longer means. Uh, I've been, in a sense, writing this book since, as you say, I got to Princeton in graduate school in 1964, where my doctoral dissertation's title was Beyond the Reach of Majorities, a phrase from the second of the flag salute cases where Justice Jackson said uh, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities. There's a constant tension in American life between majority rule and liberty and the rights of minorities. But I grew up in central Illinois in Champaign County, where, according to local lore, Abraham Lincoln, then a very prosperous traveling lawyer, railroad lawyer, uh, was in the Champaign County Courthouse in in 1854 when he heard about the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And his recoil, canny, implacable, unrelenting recoil against that act, ignited what I take to be the greatest career in the history of world politics. The Kansas-Nebraska Act said, essentially, we're going to solve the slavery question in the territories by submitting it to popular sovereignty. Vote slavery up, vote slavery down, doesn't matter. The important thing is majority rule. Raising the question, is America about majority rule a process, or is it about a condition, liberty? I'm on the liberty Liberty side. side. Yes. Yes. So um, the world is awash in commentary uh, these days. How, do, how does your grounding in, uh, in your PhD and your study of American history differentiate uh, your voice from, uh, from the, the, the great noise that we hear out there? The academic job market today is such a disaster that I'm periodically brought back to the Princeton Graduate School to tell them there's life outside academia. <laughs> and indeed, there, is a, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't use the political philosophy that I studied and intended to teach, and briefly did at Michigan State and the University of Toronto. Uh, there is in every political dispute worth writing about a kernel of large principle, particularly in a constitutional republic with a written constitution and an ever-thickening sediment of decisions construing the constitution. So it is my job to pluck out that kernel of principle that dignifies our politics. And why do you feel like you need to reclaim conservatism at this moment in time? 
because otherwise conservatism will be identified with whomever is the leader of the Republican Party, and that's unsatisfactory. Republican parties had arguments ever since in 1912, Teddy Roosevelt wanting to reclaim the White House, went to war against the incumbent president, his protege, William Howard Taft. The Taft-Roosevelt argument became the Dewey-Taft-Son argument, it became the Goldwater-Rockefeller argument. The Republican Party today has never been more homogenous than it is now. At the 500-day mark in Reagan's presidency, he had the support of 77% of Republicans. At the 500-day mark in the Trump presidency, he had the support of 87%. There's no argument in the Republican Party today. It is enthralled to someone who believes there are no restraints on presidential power, and in fact, there are precious few because Congress under both parties has willy-nilly shed powers to presidents of both parties for 80 years now. This is a president who believes in protectionism, which is everything conservatism isn't. Government telling people what they can buy in what quantities and at what prices. It's hard to get bigger, bossier government than that. Protectionism doesn't give rise to crony capitalism. It is in its genesis crony capitalism. So you say in the book that uh that our, our nation was founded on an epistemological assertion, which is that truths are not merely knowable, but known, and those truths being life, liberty, and, and, and the, 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 the old truths, the founders' truths. What, 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 is, what does, should that teach us about America today and what we, where, where we need to go? Jefferson said the truths are self-evident, by which he and the Enlightenment men who founded the country meant they are truths knowable by all minds unclouded by superstition. Not that everyone in the world sees them, it's not like two plus two is four, but minds unclouded by superstition will understand certain inalienable rights that are necessary for human flourishing. Uh, the premise of a natural rights republic, which ours is, is that there are certain rights essential to the flourishing of people with our nature and that rights come first and then comes government. The most important word in a way in the, in the Declaration of Independence is secure. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. That's the purpose of government. It has other things to do, but that's an inherently limiting definition of government. It is to facilitate people thriving by exercising rights that do not derive from government. So let's talk a little bit about government and the growth of government. You, you talk quite a bit in the book about the progressives, um, particularly President Wilson and, and President Roosevelt, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who uh, sought to expand the government and, and in your view, uh, and curtail those liberties and, and, uh, and, and more broaden the scope of government in our lives. Talk a little bit about where you see that argument today uh, particularly with uh, uh, the rise of a new form of progressivism. Franklin Roosevelt first, first came to Washington to be Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson. I, I, I th I've often said, and will now say again, <clears throat> the most important decision taken in the history of the world was where to locate the Princeton Graduate School. <laughs> uh, President Woodrow Wilson of Princeton University wanted it down in the main campus. 
His nemesis, Dean Andrew Fleming West, wanted it up where it is, on a little hill, short walk away from the campus. Uh, Wilson lost, had one of his characteristic temper tantrums, resigned, went into politics, and ruined the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> I simplify a bit and exaggerate somewhat, but uh, the argument in American politics today, as for 100 years now, is an argument between two Princetonians, James Madison of the class of 1771 and Wilson of the class of 1879. Wilson became the first president to criticize the American founding, which he did not do peripherally. He did it root and branch. He said the Madisonian architecture, particularly the separation of powers, is unsuited to the modern age. He said it was all very well to, in the 18th century when there were four million Americans, 80% of whom lived within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater. But, he said, we're now vast continental nation united by steel rails and copper wire and we need a more nimble government, one that can act with dispatch as the instrument of concentrated executive power. And ever since then, the progressive agenda has been to concentrate more and more power in Washington, more and more Washington power in the presidency, and more and more presidential power in an array of executive agencies that constitute the administrative state which itself is now essentially a fourth branch of government, operating without effective congressional oversight or supervision. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. The, the, one, of the, one of the themes of the book is the, this transition from legislative power uh, to, to the tra yeah. transfer of legislative power to the executive branch and the, the acquiescence, essentially, of the legislature in ceding its, its authority worse, it's to It's worse the, than acquiescence. Uh, yeah. that, that implies that presidents have usurped power and they've been passive. They've actually shed the power aggressively, enthusiastically, ebulliently. The one great mistake my hero Madison made was he said in the Federalist Paper that in a, in a popular government, all power is sucked into the legislative vortex. It's exactly wrong. Turns out the legislature expels powers because that way it expels accountability. It expels the tediousness of actually saying what you mean. Instead, what they now do is they, they pass, instead of laws, they're kind of velities. They say, we should all have quality education or a good environment. And then they say to the executive branch, you fill in the details which means they're all for good education and a clean environment, but they don't have to make any of the trade-offs. Um, talk about the role of the judiciary. Another theme, uh, obviously, of yours is that the judiciary offers one of the few opportunities for, uh, to reclaim, really, what the founders meant and, um, and to curtail the, the power of the, uh, of the executive branch. How have you seen that play out, and how do you think it'll continue to play out? Um, Let me come to that through beginning with the presidency. For years, conservatives said the great engine of the expansion of government has been strong executives. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson who came to Washington in the 30s to work in the New Deal and is the only president we've had who spent his entire adult life in Washington. And so they decided uh, that congressional supremacy was a good idea. It is, after all, Article I of the Constitution. And conservatives had a great canonical text. James Burnham, one of the founding editors of National Review, wrote, 
Congress and the American tradition. Then conservatives had the heady, intoxicating experience of Ronald Reagan. And they said, God, executive power is fun. And, <laughs> and so they too became fixated on the presidency, which uh, I regret. Uh, if I would just, uh, a digression from this digression. Uh, <laughs> the FDR's first fireside chat, radio talk, began with two words. They're not in the transcript, as it appears at Hyde Park in the library. His first two words addressing the American people were, my friends. Now, we've come a long way, and people say, well, what's the matter with that? I don't want presidents to be my friend. Their job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. They are, therefore, definitionally subordinate to the makers of the laws they exist to execute. Now, try to imagine George Washington addressing any group saying, my friends. He didn't say that to his friends. <laughs> or Chester Arthur, or William Howard Taft, or any of these people. Uh, that's my way of coming to your question about the judiciary. Conservatives uh, in recoil against some of the more freewheeling rights inventions by the Warren Court began to adopt what was actually the progressive's mantra, which was the court should be deferential to the legislative branch and to the executive, to the popularly elected organs of our government. They wanted uh, judicial restraint. It turns out, I think, and they said this because uh, of what was so-called the counter-majoritarian difficulty, that judicial review was supposedly uh, a, an anomaly in a country devoted to majority rule. My disagreement with this begins by saying in the book that John Marshall is the third most important uh, public figure in our history because by inventing judicial review, by making the court the decider when a law must be put down next to the Constitution to see if they're discordant, uh, he invented the judicial supervision of democracy. Today, the, the great argument in America is really not between progressives and conservatives, it's between conservatives who still adhere to the idea of judicial deference and those who say, no, the judiciary ought to be much more vigorously engaged in stopping government actions that violate fundamental rights. People say, well, gee, what about majority rule? 99% of what the government does has nothing to do with majorities. It has to do with its response to compact, intense, articulate, well-lawyered uh, factions in the country. Uh, therefore, when the ju judiciary strikes down some of these laws, it's not in any way uh, truncating majority rule in any meaningful sense. So you, you have an interesting assertion about the, the founders' view of, of capitalism and markets, saying basically that they don't just make us better off, they make us better. And that's obviously a sentiment that's widely shared in the halls of of Goldman Sachs, God, I uh, hope so. Uh, uh, capitalist society. Uh, so, so what do you make of the revolt against capitalism today? Where is that coming from? Where's its roots in, in American history as you see it? And where, are we, where is that debate likely to go? The argument between Jefferson and Hamilton, our first great argument, was between Jefferson who said he wanted a nation of stable, rural yeomen independent because of, they owned their lands and dispersed so they couldn't hear the 
axe of a nearby farm or see the smoke from a nearby cabin's chimney. Stable, serene, producing people rather like Thomas Jefferson, it turned out. <laughs> Hamilton said, was having none of this. He was from this island here and yes. he said, uh, no, we want restless, upwardly mobile, entrepreneurial, uh, constantly dissatisfied, aspiring people who were rather here. <laughs> who, who were rather like Alexander Hamilton. Yes. And they both understood they had a sociology of character, that they would if you have a certain kind of economic arrangement, you get a certain kind of character. Now, and two things happened in 1776. We got going as a country, and Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, uh, which in a way should be a founding document of the United States. I do believe that capitalism makes us better off. The great enrichment since the late 18th century is evidence of this. I also believe, however, that it makes us better by enforcing certain virtues, thrift, industriousness, deferral of gratification, individualism, a whole tenor of society is developed. Furthermore, a market society, by stressing the spontaneous order, to use Hayek's phrase, of a, of a market society of freely cooperating and contracting individuals, is a polite society. Walk any, into any American store, the first, five, first words you hear are, how may I help you? And that's the ethos of a capitalist society, a market society. So, so what, what do you make of the, the, the sort of deep dissatisfaction with the state of modern capitalism today? Well, there's a deep dissatisfaction with a lot of things, but I don't think it's capitalism. And I think the supposed sudden popularity of socialism is a fiction. It's a, it's a misconstruing of spurious data, which is a double mistake. You ask the so-called millennial socialists what they mean, and it turns out socialism to them means everybody being nice to everybody, being sociable. You go back and say, well, that's not what Lenin meant. Lenin said government ownership of everything. And the millennials who say we're sort of sympathetic to capitalism are very skeptical of the government. It's going to be really hard for them to square that. Then Lenin said, no, socialism means government ownership of the commanding heights of the economy, heavy industry, transportation, communications, et cetera. After the Second World War, socialism became further diluted. When people said, we don't need to own the, these things. Socialism is heavy government regulation of the private sector combined with aggressive redistribution of income, mm -hmm. news bulletin. That describes America today. 67% of your federal budget is transfer payments. The sky is dark with checks going back and forth, distributing wealth from one group to another. Mm -hmm. So the idea that uh, I'm, I look forward to the high comedy of the Republicans running in 2020 against socialism, when they are, I mean, the president said the other day, one of the purposes of Mexican tariffs is to stop American, uh, uh, Latin Americans from coming north across the border from the south, but also to get corporations to come north across the border from the south. So he's planning. An economy. He's, he's planning the economy. I mean, at its essence, socialism is the allocation of capital by government. 
Export-Import Bank. The Republicans just re-upped on that. Now, how do they get done re-ratifying the Export-Import Bank and then going to the country saying socialism is evil? So you left the Republican Party. It uh, left me. It left you, yeah. It's, a, it's an old line, a good one. Um, uh, what, what, how, how do you think about the virtues of trying to reform the party from within or attempt to reform it or reclaim it? Uh, and, or, uh, and, you know, very few people have, have actually walked away. Maybe Joe Scarborough, Max Boot, a, a couple, couple prominent political Republicans. But it's mostly been a party that's sort of acquiesced to the rise of, of President Trump. Yes, well, <clears throat> leaving a, a political party is not like leaving a church. It's not like leaving a family. A political party is an intensely utilitarian instrument, and when it stops being useful, you f go elsewhere. I find being a free agent kind of exhilarating. <laughs> uh, Samuel Johnson once said he described himself as an unclubbable person, and I think I'm unclubbable. Okay. It, um, I, I, I still write, I still say what I want. Uh, I'm still looking for receptive people. Yeah. There are just fewer of them in office uh, with R's after their names. Yeah. So look, look, talk a little bit about the state of journalism. You've always been, um, well, well, you know, you have a traditional, well, not a traditional journalistic background, but a, 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 a rooting in history and um, you've written a, a column, which is an, an old-fashioned um, but relevant uh, uh, form. You've embraced television pretty early on. Uh, you've used Twitter. Uh... Wait, wait, wait. wait. I, <laughs> that is an accusation. I'm not let a young person in my staff tweets twice a week excerpts from my columns. Well, there you go. I've never tweeted, to the best of my knowledge, I've never read it. You've deployed Twitter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you make of, of journalists who are voicing their opinions uh, pretty much from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed? Uh, they, should, they should be reading. Yeah. You know, I mean, what's the point? Uh, if, if they're journalists, I mean, I write, a, I write 100 columns a year. I've written approaching 6,000 columns in my life. What do I need 240 more characters for? Yeah. I mean, what, to show, tell them what I'm thinking at the moment? I prefer to wait until my thoughts are refined and filtered and expressed. All right, a, a couple quick questions. Um, what's the last great book you read? Uh, the British Are Coming by Rick Atkinson. It's the first of what will be a the trilogy, trilogy? Yeah, yeah. On, the, on the American Revolution. He wrote the brilliant trilogy on uh, American forces in the European theater in the Second World War. It's history as literature. It's magnificent. Who's the columnist writing today, conservative columnist writing today, that you most see your younger self in, or uh, that you at least think has promise? Ann Applebaum, uh, who might not even call herself a conservative, but I have grim news for her. She is. Uh, she's um, <clears throat> married. Well, her husband's certainly conservative. Yeah, yeah. Her, her husband is, is a conservative. She lives, I think, in London now. Yeah. Uh, writes brilliantly about Europe and about the rise of the populace and all of that. Interesting. And what, what's one rule in baseball? We haven't talked about your baseball writing, although it's, it's um, a, whole, a whole other conversation on that. What's one rule in baseball you would change if you could? I'd enlarge the strike zone, raising it from there to there. 
because baseball's today being ruined by the fact that there are only the three true outcomes, walk, strikeouts, home runs, which means the ball is put in play about once every four minutes. It's this fixation with launch angle, with the new ball which travels farther. So uh, as a result, you had in uh, 2018, for the first time in history, more strikeouts than singles, than hits. You cannot loft a ball from that part of the strike zone, so they'd have to come up and put the ball back in play. So basically shrink it to waste. No, to, no, no, I'd, I'd, I'm sorry. I'd still go from the knees Knee up, to the, yep. but make from there to there a strike. Uh, best advice you've ever gotten? Read. All right. From my father. He was a professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois and a believer in the old media, Gutenberg and all that. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on June 6th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.